Hello and welcome. My name's Ben. I'm the CEO of Charlie HR, and this is the Culture Ops Podcast. We're the podcast that's trying to lift the lid on the challenging situations that affect your business and your culture on a daily basis. Let's get into it. Welcome back to the Culture Ops Podcast. The way we work, the expectations we have for how we work have changed, and they continue to change. That's what makes working in this space so interesting and exciting. We're literally in the middle of the most impactful adjustment to the way the world works that we've seen in easily the last 50 years. It's important to challenge our assumptions, question our existing viewpoints, and consider different or opposing viewpoints, all in the pursuit of a world that works better. Today, I want to have one of those conversations. I want to face head-on the impact that a world that is working more remotely has on the need and the requirement for an effective company culture. Does it matter as much? Does it matter a little bit less? With me is someone who is somewhat of an influencer, a legend, a bit of a hero in the people HR recruiting space here in the UK, author of Recruiting Brain Food, Hung Lee. Hung, welcome to the Culture Ops podcast. How the hell are you? I'm very well, Ben. Thank you for inviting me on the show. I'm excited to have a chat with you about this. Cool. Um, So before we dive in uh, and I guess start to grapple with um, what is uh, a a, a potentially quite divisive topic, and I appreciate you coming on the show to discuss it with me. Um, hey, let's give the audience uh, a bit of background on who you are, what you do. Uh, maybe give us the recruiting brain food elevator pitch. Yeah, sure. So um, basically, uh, I write a newsletter and I run a community and I do a podcast, live stream, and stuff like that. So all of that is recruiting brain food. Um, its purpose is pretty is is I think very clear. Um, there's like tons of information out there. Uh, too much information, it's, you can't consume it all. Uh, what recruiting brain food is there to do is, is to curate that stuff and make sure that you're only imbibing the stuff that's going to stimulate you intellectually. Um, uh, so it's like get rid of the cheap carbs, get the quality food in. Um, that's what recruiting brain food is uh, is all about. Nice. Well, what's the thing that you, I guess are most passionate passionate about when it comes to 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 creating the content that you do you know what's the thing that like gets you out of bed in the morning do you know what i am intellectually curious about a lot of the stuff that's happening i mean your intro says it all ben um the world is changing we're in the middle of this change um even at the very depths of the pandemic when it was panic stations and you know everyone you know totally ambiguous as to how that world was gonna going to uh crystallize and emerge um, I, I think it was still impossible not to be very curious, right? Um, to think, oh my goodness, how is this going to affect things? Um, uh, what does this mean for the world of work? Uh, what does this mean for our relationship with work? Um, all of those things, I, I think, you know, if you have some curiosity about it, that that was totally switched on over the last uh, uh, 18 months, two years or so. So, so yeah, I don't think there's any um, difficulty in being motivated simply because of how dynamic and how significant uh, the moment is uh, for us right now. Nice. Okay, so let's dive in. So the idea to record this episode came from a tweet uh, that you put out, and um, uh, I sort of I saw it, and and I guess the reason I reached out to you was that it was a perspective that is uh, different or adjacent to maybe my worldview, and I'm, I'm definitely not one of those people that believes that 
you know, there is any one perspective that is right. You know, I've been building companies for 15 years and there is so many different ways to build uh, a company. And the same applies for culture, right? Like there is not any one way to build an effective company culture. There's not any one view that is right <clears throat> in my perspective when it comes to thinking about company culture. So um, yeah, I wanted to have a bit of a conversation that maybe is adjacent to some of the stuff that we put out on the day-to-day on this show. So maybe let's start at the beginning. Do you want to set your stall out for how you think uh, remote work is impacting company culture? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, and, and firstly, Ben, I really appreciate you for interacting with me on that. I appreciate it, it might have been a bit of a triggering post, um, but, but it was uh, just to contextualize where that was. It was some data, I think, from LinkedIn, I believe, um, where um, it was quite interesting that they, were, they, they, they presented two sets of data, which I thought was really interesting, which was number one, um, what were candidates looking for? We all know, for instance, it is flexibility, it's remote work. That's like one of the primary aims for job candidates today. Um, uh, they've had two years uh, or more of this experience. They don't want to let it go. Uh, the numbers of people that want to have a full on-premise uh, job um, is vanishingly small. It's into the single figure, single digits in terms of percentile uh, of job candidates. Um, and LinkedIn kind of like they controversially put um, sort of the uh, another chart next to it, which is how important was company culture, um, and it was actually declining in terms of their interest. Um, and I just thought those two things were actually aligned in the sense they were one was actually contingent upon the other. Um, so meaning that culture was more important for job candidates when they had to work on premise, um, simply because it was it would be a more intense uh, experience. Um, there'll be a greater requirement for enculturation. Um, there would be a, a lot of early discovery of things like cultural fit. Like, for instance, uh, these days we can't use the term cultural fit. It's generally considered taboo. Uh, we rewound back five years even. Um, it was actually the thing we were meant to be recruiting against. Um, so I think there's a lot of like um, trends, there's a lot of fashions about what is good or what is bad. If you remember mid-2015, mid you know, 16 or whatever, hiring for cultural fit was actually the antidote to hiring against experience, right? We thought, oh, experience isn't the most important thing. you got to hire for cultural alignment, hire for value alignment, or you know, new terminology to describe, I think, the same thing. Um, uh, it's basically saying we want people um, that are going to work and behave in the way in which uh, you know, we think is is positive versus negative. Now, what I'm saying with that tweet, and I guess is is my line, is that that is going to matter less in a distributed world um, because you can discharge your obligation to your company, you can work effectively as a, a remote employee and simply have less cultural interaction um, with your colleagues. You're going to care less, basically, um, about um, your colleagues. Um, we're going to have less interaction with the people there. Um, it makes a huge difference in a team. Uh, you know, when you're hiring someone, you know you're going to be sitting next to this person 40 hours a week, um, more so sometimes in really intensive teams, um, you know, five five days a week, 40 hours a week, 48 hours a year, 48 <laughs> weeks a year. That's a big commitment, right? That's like you better get on with that person. Um, and therefore, we have erected, uh, or at least pre-pandemic, we erected a number of reason, a number of ways to mitigate the risk of getting that wrong. Um, like a very heavy recruiting process to try and reduce the risk that we hired the wrong person. Um, these days with the distributed working, we don't need to do that. 
um, uh, we can we can hire someone more casually um, because there's less intensity with that interaction. Um, they're going to be remote. Uh, I'm remote. Um, let's see how this person does. It's going to be a lot more experimental, a lot more try before you buy, a lot more easier decisions uh, in and out on the ex- entry and exit point of working with a company. So much just so much gold in that sort of 120 second monologue from you there. I've so been scribbling down a few things that I want to I want to jump into. Make notes, Ben. Yeah, <laughs> make notes. <laughs> yeah, and um, we've only got half an hour, mate. So I don't know how we're going to do it, but um, uh, I think. So the, the premise to what you're saying, which which I agree with and I like, is that our ideas evolve. And I think the people that are able to be successful as the world adapts and changes are those that can understand the context of what they're living and look at their values, their principles, the things that they thought were true, the assumptions that they made, and like readjust and reaffirm. And so, you know, you use the great example there, cultural fit. Absolutely, was something that I touted, you know, five years ago when we were hiring the first employees at Charlie. I remember saying things like, you know, uh, I just don't, I can't see myself going and having a coffee with this person on a Sunday, right? I can't see myself like hanging out and spending time with this person. And, uh, you know, the reality is I slightly cringe at some of that uh, behavior. Um, I also see a lot of naivety potentially in my view. Yeah, our, our views change, they adapt as we learn more and understand how these things fit together. So fully on board with that and, f- and fully support that. Um, what you're saying is that different things matter now because the things that we value in life have changed. And, and sort of on the list, uh, you know, and, and you're, you're talking as someone who is uh, an expert in understanding the recruitment and HR market, Speaking of recruiters, speaking to people that work with recruiters, speaking to companies that create, you know, recruitment software is something that you do on a probably a weekly and monthly basis. So you probably have a very keen and and clear understanding of what the market looks like, what the candidate market looks like. You name two things, flexibility and, you know, colleagues and culture. What else is on that list? And and if, 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 if sort of like flexibility of how I work and where I work is number one you know how do you see the other the the other requirements that candidates are looking for on that list how do you order them and what do you think the other things are that should be on that list yeah I mean this is it's a high demand situation right so anybody who's in the front edge and hiring four people for their companies will be able to you know validate um, some of these things so flexibility uh, of work and location that, that flexibility also extends to timing as well. It's not always about a, um, you know, a, a place. It's also about uh, when um, uh, the person is going to work. Does that person have agency over their schedule, for instance, their timing and so on? Um, so that that demand is now, um, I think, uh, prominent. Um, candidates are very cognizant of the current market conditions also, and rightly, they are negotiating hard. Um, so compensation is very high in that list as well. Um, uh, I, I think we're, we're starting to see candidates now that are actively uh, looking for opportunities in order to increase their salary. So that wasn't the case 12 months ago, um, where the candidate marketplace is actually very defensive. They weren't sure about what was going on. They were kind of, you know, waiting to see 
the worst impacts of the pandemic uh, sort of recede before making decisions. Now I think they recognize there is a candidate shortage and, and if you are going to move um, and uh, maximize your earnings, now is the time to do so. Um, that, that includes recruiters, by the way. Um, you know, uh, no one can hire recruiters. Guess what? Recruiters are stepping into the market um, while still in work and saying, right, give me this. Um, and and uh, this is a, a very, very good time for recruiters to go, actually go out and have that conversation. Um, so uh, flexibility, compensation, um, they, I think, are um, the stated um, priorities, the, the clear two. Um, and then there are other things that uh, people um, will, will cite as, as important, uh, such as uh, cultural values, um, diversity sort of policy uh, and inclusion policies. Um, uh, all kinds of different things will, will start emerging. Selectiveness in terms of industry, you know, um, yeah, when you have what the candidates have now, which is uh, essentially a very abundant mind, uh, abundant marketplace, um, you can start throwing in a lot of demands um, and, and you can sit in a very strong position because you, you, you have an assurance that the opportunities are always going to be there. Uh, even if you decided, you know, to take a break uh, for a couple of weeks, a month or two or whatever, that's still going to be okay. You can just jump back straight into market. So, so yeah, I think the list of demands is high. I think there's clear, there's two clear ones in my view that are, are, are ahead of the others. Uh, and it is the two that we mentioned, compensation and flexibility. Okay, that's really, really clear. And um, yeah, I appreciate you giving that sort of macro perspective. I think I think it's useful and it's uh, interesting to sort of step back and and see everything uh, as it as it is. Um, so if if culture matters less, flexibility and compensation maybe matters more now than it might have done uh, two years ago. That's what you're saying. As a caveat to all of this, like. Critics of my post and critics of of, of me generally uh, would would make the claim that flexibility is part of culture, and in fact, even compensation might be considered part of this uh, rubric of culture, right? So I totally get uh, I get that every human activity that involves another human being could be considered a part of culture. I, I don't, uh, uh, you know, we can take a, a maximalist view of of what culture means, and I think that's totally fair. Um, I think in the context of that initial comment that I made online that you saw. It was about sort of that cultural fit issue. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a narrower discussion as to, you know, what was previously super, super important, um, even implicit, whether it was explicit or implicit, you know, can I have a coffee with this person? Ben, don't cringe at that. Guess what? Everyone has that thing. Everyone has that thing in their mind, whether they say so or not. Um, what happened over the last decade pre-COVID was that we stopped being able to say that. Um, uh, but there's no question that this concept of can can I stand this person being in a room for, for, for uh, a long period of time, I think was still uh, the main reason, the main driver behind the decision we made. Um, and that's not illegitimate when you think about it. Um, uh, you know, if you have a problem with a person, as unfair as it might be, uh, but if you literally have a character clash with this individual, uh, that will actually compromise your ability as a, as a business unit to function. So you are a senior exec, for instance, at Charlie Ben, right? You hire someone who's just the banging technically, absolutely no question, A-lister, the best person ever. But for some reason, there's a, some sort of clash. I don't know what that may be. It could be a, a chemistry thing. It could be whatever. Some people just don't chime, right? We don't quite know why that is. 
Um, but if you went ahead and hired that person objectively, quote unquote, and it suddenly then suppressed your performance, guess what? It probably isn't a good hire because overall, if the unit of analysis is the business, that's a terrible hire because I've compromised Ben, who's a critical, critically important employee in my business. So I'm, a, I'm, I'm actually sympathetic to the idea that hiring for cultural fit is not necessarily a bad thing if the context of, of the unit of analysis is the unit. Uh, is the unit of the business. It's grossly unfair uh, when, uh, in terms of scale. So if you, if you have a very large business, for instance, and you start making random decisions of this type, you can absolutely start saying this is uh, uh, an egregious sort of uh, bias because that person who's highly skilled might find another opportunity elsewhere in different groups. But when you're working in a small team where there isn't that room to flex, uh, to, to be flexible, that ability of that person to work with other people is going to be critical. And it may not be um, sort of the fault of the candidate. It may be your fault as a hiring manager, right? But you're still a hiring manager. Um, so you need to be self-aware as to how you behave with other people. And if actually you have a problem with someone's other behavior like this and you can't compromise against that, you can't evolve. Well, guess what? Um, you need to make hiring decisions uh, uh, based on your own self-awareness more than anything else. Yeah. And I think that my perspective is, is that there's a sort of duality that exists there, which is that where we've gotten it wrong Um and, and maybe this sort of will start to uncover, uh, I guess, maybe, you know, like my perspective on how, how I see the content of, 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 of your perspective on, you know, culture and how it matters, maybe more or less in, in a remote and hybrid environment is that I think there's a difference between my ability to work with someone and my ability to be friends with that person. Right. Like, sure. I think those two things are very, are, are two very different things. And um, I have friends that I work with, and it works com- completely well. I also have friends that I work with where sometimes I wish I didn't work with them because totally get it. actually yeah, yeah. I'm not sure it's a, a particularly good thing for, 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 for our friendship. I also have um, lots of people that I work with who I think are brilliant humans and I have a huge amount of love for, but are not my friends, you know? And I think one of the traps that we fall into as humans is we like to put things in, in clear and obvious boxes. We like to like put a label on something and be like, this works, this doesn't. And the reality is on these things that actually this stuff is like way more subtle and like the lines are way more blurred um, than, than we would like. We shouldn't be hiring people just because we feel like we could be friends with them. 100%. But that doesn't mean that, that doesn't mean I, I can't form the right relationships and be effective with someone, even if they aren't someone that I would want to spend lots of time with outside of work. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Those two things do need to be separated and, and, and quite correct to do that, although it takes quite a, a quite an effort of self-discipline to do so. And I think oftentimes we... Uh, uh, like, like we, we don't know whether we're any good at it to begin with. Um, you know, I'm sure if you interviewed any hiring manager, they would say, yes, I can compartmentalize my, you know, personal, um, uh, 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 affinity with somebody versus my professional affinity with that person. Everyone will claim their ability to do that, but it's not clear how they can, how that's, how that's evidenced. Um, uh, because to a large degree, that person is still making the hiring decisions one way or the other, right? So, so it's almost like our sample is purely the people that have already gone through this process. We can't tell whether that's a biased process or not. Um, here's the thing, though. Um, when you're working in a distributed environment, some of these problems become less important. 
Um, because your ability to get on with someone is different when you're working intensively in this day-to-day sort of, you're literally in the same box um, for a vast majority of your waking life um, compared to when you're distributed, when your interactions are going to be far less. Um, like for instance, in a remote working environment, um, th- there's no osmotic information transfer, right? So, which is a long way to say a lot of unintentional information that's just effused out by being next to somebody. Um, uh, this is sometimes when you're with people, uh, you can be irrationally annoyed at someone, right? Um, or their behaviors, they chew a little bit too loudly, or they do things that are just a bit strange or whatever, or, you know, they, they, they're enjoying different bits of media you don't like or, or whatever it is, like all these kinds of things might occur osmotically. They're not intentionally trying to perform for you. Um, they're just showing this out. Maybe it's body language, right? Some people have a, a particular way of behaving or communicating with body language that actually it can be difficult to interpret. Um, now, all of those things, I think, recede when you're in this remote and distributed environment. You may just simply never be aware of them. So good example I would use would be one of the best people I've ever worked with. I've never met her. I've never spoke to her. Um, I don't even know what she looks like. She's just super reliable, super awesome, does her job very transactionally. So this is also based on the type of work you do, right? So relationship I have with this person is that there's a set task that I need her to do. She does it every week, no fail, has done that for four years brilliant person to work with. Um, do I know what she's like as a person? No. Um, have I ever had a conversation with her? Also no. Um, is there, can, can our relationship be described as a minimal relationship in, ter- in terms of cultural exchange? Absolutely. Um, and yet she's been an awesome worker for me. So what I'm saying is that it's uh, based on the type of work. So there's another context to this, which we need to add nuance to, um, which is this idea of collaboration intensity. Um, So in other words, if a job requires a high degree of collaboration intensity, then I think the old rules of, you know, this person needing to be aligned professionally are absolutely going to be there Uh, because your interaction with this person is really intense. You can't actually produce an output unless that collaboration is intense. Um, You know, it won't work. Good example would be product stuff. You build product, Ben, you know this. You've got to be almost cheek by jowl in the old way. You know, it's much easier to do in person, actually. You're building with a developer or whatever. I'm building something tomorrow. Developer that I'm working with wants to come in and, and see me to do that. I totally understand the value. Highly collaboratively intensive. Now, a lot of jobs are not that way, though. A lot of tasks are not that way. They're very transactional. The collaboration intensity is low. And those are the jobs that actually suit the remote experience much better. Um, uh, you know, it could be financial stuff. This person is an accountant type figure. You don't need to be sitting next to this person. That'll be negative to that individual. They need to focus on doing the books. Um, so yeah, this person's out of the office and actually there's no need to have a cultural relationship with that person. Um, so one way to handle this or one way to think about it is maybe you kind of go through the kind of activities you want the people in your business to do. And you think about what is the level of collaboration intensity of that particular job. Um, and you start thinking about which types of function need to be closer in person, perhaps, which ones can be more distant um, and almost think, right, we need to be closer. We, we might need to have a different way to analyze or assess this person's suitability for the job based on how much time I'm spending with that person, which means all of these cultural stuff comes back in. Whereas where it's remote and distributed, actually, I don't really care whether this person behaves or thinks in this particular way, so long as they output what they, I need them to output. Yeah. So what I hear in that is sort of creating a culture, creating relationships that are 
effective in helping the organization and you do what you need to do. And so um, those are going to differ organization to organization. They're going to differ person to person. They're going to differ based on the job that that person is doing. It's incredibly contextual. And, you know, that there is a part of that that aligns with my worldview or our worldview on culture, which is that I don't talk about good culture and bad culture. I talk about effective and ineffective because, like, I think that is where we got lost over the last 10 years. And and I think that's partly the the bit that I pick at with the with the the LinkedIn stats that you shared is they 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 put colleagues and culture kind of on the same data point. So really, what they were talking about was relationships with people, which is a part of our culture, um, but it's not everything. And and over the last ten years, pre COVID, we kind of got ourselves into a situation where we thought that culture was going to the pub after work or having a nice lunch with people or going and doing something socially. And culture should be a tool to help your business be effective. If it isn't, then I don't think you're thinking about it in the right way. I absolutely 100% believe that effective cultures can enable incredible business outcomes. Those cultures can be cultures that you and I would want to be a part of I'm sure that you would enjoy the Charlie culture. I think it's a very nice culture. Um, I personally wouldn't enjoy the Goldman Sachs culture. Right. That doesn't mean it's not effective. I think the Goldman Sachs culture is incredibly effective at achieving the outcomes it wants to achieve. Right. And I think they're very deliberate with what with what they're trying to do. I love the direction you're going there. Absolutely. I think. I think. Firstly, with the point about you know culture being trivialized into. You know, a, a ritual. You know, these these these, these kind of startupy. If, you, if we're honest, it was basically co- emerging from startup, wasn't it? Where startups basically wanted to compete with each other for talent, and therefore they kind of uh, uh, kind of emblemized a lot of these 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 perks, and, and that became understood as culture. Um, and, and we're rightly critical of that because it's clearly just the 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 the, the external one ex- external facet of culture rather than anything like the depth uh, of of understanding that we need I, I think the conversation has definitely improved throughout the covid period because we've had to think deeply about what company culture is um and we've had to start you know this has now become you know from a niche uh, conversation now it's a mainstream topic when we're talking about culture i think all of us would reject the idea that it's a it's a it's a ping pong table uh, all of us would denigrate that as a as, as a symbol of of a, of a past discussion of how we think about culture so i think we have moved beyond this which is very positive and and i think you're even more advanced ben when you're when you're kind of rejecting a, a moral view um of w- whether a culture is good or bad so uh, uh, you know rejecting that normative as, uh, analysis of it and just thinking look does it actually do what it needs to do because that's the most important thing um and i think if we embrace and lean into that it can actually be quite a challenging uh, uh position to stay in because then we start looking at the organization as the unit of analysis which is typically my preference um so i don't think about necessarily the individual good i think about the uh, the greater good if you like maybe maybe it's my chinese-ness coming in i don't know um uh, but it's generally more communitarian so I use the example of the military. Um, I mean, you look at the military um, and the requirements that you might have to get involved in if you're in the forces, under fire, uh, risk of life and limb, et cetera, et cetera. Guess what? It isn't going to necessarily be particularly democratic. 
Um, it's not, you're going to have to do what you're told. If you're one of the grunts and you're in a chain of command, very hierarchical, I need you to do this. There's going to be minimal homo- uh, heterogeneity in terms of cultural values in a military environment. You have to be on completely aligned. In fact, if you look at the, the rituals involved in military, it is about eliminating heterogeneity. You shave your head, you're giving a number, you're like reducing individual choice. That's how you create effective military units because it's there to perform a role. Now, if you look at different um, cultures in terms of company environments, Goldman Sachs, you cited as an example, I'm not saying they're a military organization, um, but I would say there's an idea whereby if, the, if, if, if we think of organizations as the unit of analysis, um, if the external environment is generally hostile to that unit of analysis, then you kind of need to have like everyone on board with a single idea. Uh, in other words, it's like, okay, this is how we do it. We have to do it more efficiently than than the opposition because otherwise we're going to get hammered. I think Goldman Sachs quite a mature organization in terms of its investment banking. You know how you how to succeed there. You know who your enemies are. You just got to do it, right? Um, so hostile environment means cultural homogeneity prob- probably is going to be superior to home, uh, cultural heterogeneity. However, um, where the external environment is benign, in other words, it's not existentially threatening all the time, then actually a homogenous culture is going to be poorer because you're going to be failing to be innovative and failing to encounter uh, opportunities in the same way. That's when you need a more heterogeneous culture when the external environment is benign. Um, And I think, you know, these ideas will eventually percolate into how we think and organize and even potentially engineer cultures. Um, A good example to use here is, is... uh, sometimes in the uh, Plains Indians in the in North America, often had two different types of chief based on the external environment. There was a war chief, and then there was a peace chief. Different person, different skills, different culture. Because guess what? If you're on the war path, you needed to have a different way of behaving in order to succeed. But that was a totally wrong kind of uh, qualities in leadership and company culture, a uh, group culture that you needed when you are not on the war path and you're in peace. Now, I don't know that an organization that is able to oscillate leadership in this way or even to change their culture based on, you know, the, 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 the sense of the external environment. But I would love to see us talk about it because I think sometimes we struggle because we don't understand, you know, uh, what is the requirement at the time. And instead, we uh, adhere to kind of universal rules that we think apply in all contexts, which, you know, I don't think is the case. And so this is this is my absolute argument, which is that culture is something that you cannot physically architect because uh, it is the natural experience when you put a bunch of people together, right? It is a, yeah, it's it's a feeling, it's an experience, it's you know almost an energy that 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 exists in a in a situation whenever one or more people come together, and really that was the thinking behind culture ops, which was that we needed a term to describe doing the activity that was going to have the impact on the experience that we wanted. Because I know that I can't walk into a board meeting as a CEO and say, my number one priority is like improving our culture. Like, I just feel like I'm going to get laughed out of the room because they're going to say, well, how are you going to do that? And what's that going to look like? But if I walked into a board meeting and said, I want to improve our ability to attract the best talent. And I'm going to do that through uh, thinking about having the, do we have the right people in the room? I'm going to think about our processes as an organization and I'm going to think about our policies. I think our board would say, okay, well, those feel like actual 
levers that I can hold on to, clear and clear activity that's going to have an impact on the organization. And and that is that's my argument for culture ops as a term in the industry because it gives us a framework to think about the actual work that has to happen. Because I think that's the point here. The point here is that the most effective cultures are the ones that are intentional. And a remote and hybrid experience requires you to be a load more intentional with the type of culture, the type of experience that you're architecting. You can't allow it to be unintentional and just lean on the osmotic influence that happens across the organization. You have to be really, really intentional. And I think if you are intentional, it can be really effective. But if you're not, it's definitely not going to help you um, be effective with your business priorities. Yeah, listen, Ben, I couldn't agree with that last comment um, anymore. I think you're absolutely right. Um, Previously, Previously, we neglected uh, the intentionality of culture because we relied on people evolving it in communion uh, with others. So if you imagine what old school enculturation was, it was simply dropping you in into the sales desk or dropping you into that development team. And, you know, you'll get it through osmotic information transfer, right? <laughs> you'll, you'll see what the leaders, you'll observe what was happening. Oh, you know, Ben's doing this, I better do that. And then that's how you become enculturated. Whereas in a distributed environment, we don't have the osmotic information transfer. You have to design it. And I think you can design it uh, and you have to distill it. So it's almost pure you know, it's almost like you've got to get it down to the core principles. And then oftentimes you have to document it, you have to ritualize it, and you have to, you know, deliberately do all of these things. And in fact, if you study any of the remote first businesses, particularly the ones that were remote first pre-COVID, um, which I always considered to be, uh, you know, the, the cultural innovators in, in our space, because they did intentionally become remote first rather than have it forced upon them. Um, they are the ones that will that have a lot to teach us in terms of how to uh, uh, kind of create uh, an effective culture in a distributed way. Um, and, you know, a, a, a thing I would say to you, um, uh, ben, is I do believe you can engineer it. We we lack the language often, um, uh, and we we are almost also lack the not lack, but perhaps we confuse the morality of it uh, as well a little bit. So in other words, we sometimes get uncomfortable with the concept of engineering a culture or designing a culture because it feels like we're taking agency away from you know human beings that are, are part of it. Uh, it feels kind of better if it's all organically uh, sort of emergent. Um, but I think that. Um, uh, a culture is perhaps not engineered is probably the wrong term, uh, but it is cultivated. Um, and you can certainly cultivate culture um, simply as a gardener would. You know, you could uproot things that you don't want and get rid. Um, or you could replant something that isn't working in one sort of area of the garden and replant it somewhere else. Or water this more, nurture that less. You can kind of cultivate it and it might not still work because it's an organic thing. You can do everything right and still the plant might die. Um, but at the same time, you, you you maximize the chances of you getting, you know, a healthy garden if you knew a little bit about Borony. Um, so I guess where we're at now as as as, as we're going as a as a I guess, professionals in the space that are interested in it, I think we're getting better at understanding what culture is. I think we're getting better at becoming gardeners. Um, and hopefully we're going to be able to produce, uh, you know, flourishing cultures. Um, as you say, different types of garden, right? We don't want monoculture. We don't want the same identikit thing. Uh, we're going to get different displays. We're going to get different things. Uh, step back from the, moral- the moralizing of it. 
You know, I, I think ultimately, um, uh, uh, in in a strange way, I often defend. Um, I wouldn't say toxic cultures, but I do respect cultures that absolutely step up and say, "We're like this. If you don't like it, then you can you can go away," um, because at least they're not being dishonest. Um, and the worst thing you can do is kind of you know dishonestly. Um, kind of present a culture and then it's actually very different once you're in because that's basically uh, tricking that individual into uh, joining and then there's potentially a traumatic exit from that uh, from that environment again I don't want to name names but you and I probably know the ones that we're talking about you know the work hard sort of uh, uh, party hard type of startup cultures the way I see it is look I probably beyond that period in my own life, whether I, I want to subject myself to that. But at the same time, if they're literally honest and upfront and saying, this is how it is going to be in our business, I think a fair play. People will self-select in and out if that's the, the case. What we don't want to do is start moralizing and then creating pressure for companies to have to adopt the socially approved way of how culture works. Um, uh, you know, it, within the bounds of legality, of course. Um, uh, you know, there are hard things that you can't do uh, that are bounded by law. Um, but I'd like to see that as the as the baseline rather than, you know, some sort of moral good or bad uh, lens on uh, a company culture. Yeah. And, you know, you talk about toxic cultures. I think from from my experience and people talking to people, you know, like that's pretty much what I spend, you know, 30, 40 percent of my time doing is just talking to people about organizational culture. The most toxic cultures, the, the cultures that have the, 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 the most awful impact on people and sometimes the impact is still present way after they've left the organization. The cultures where leadership and the organization talk one game and they walk a very different game. I don't have a problem with a company like Revolut because Nikolai is very clear right. on the organization that, that he, he is trying to build. I would want nothing to do with it personally. Like that is not me. I would not function. I would not be able to craft a culture like that. That's not my game. But Nikolai is incredibly open about that. He knows the type of organization that he's trying to build. I think people have a choice uh, and we have a choice about when we're speaking to companies and when we're interviewing, we have a choice in terms of trying to understand like what is that cultural experience going to be like? I think organizations should be putting that out front and center, setting up their shop stores saying, look, this is the experience that you're going to have. I think the most toxic, the most damaging organizations are the ones that put out a shop store that says, hey, yes, this is how we're going to treat you. We're going to look after you. All of these things, you know, we take mental health really seriously. And then you realize that actually they don't have the people strategy, they don't have the processes, and they don't have the policies to actually back that up. That's what good culture looks like. It's intentional and it's crafted and it's something that is constantly being worked at. So I'm going to go back to the beginning and I'm not going to ask the same question, but I'm going to ask a different question just to like round us out, which is uh, if we're intentional about our, cult our cultures, can an effective culture in a remote environment still deliver like incredible business outcomes if it's crafted in the right way? I don't think that's a question you need to ask me, Ben. Um, I mean, you can simply look at companies that have performed in this way um, and, and very clearly you can, you know, distributed cultures, some of the biggest technology, typically is technology still. So it's interesting to see whether, you know, this will uh, will, will, will move beyond, you know, the, the production of tech. Um, so far, the companies that seem to have, uh, uh, you know, been successful are the ones that themselves produce distributed technologies. Um, so they've almost forced themselves to kind of... Uh, eat their own dog food 
and have been successful with it. I'd love to see a bank succeed. Um, I would love to see a telecoms company succeed. I would love to see a software house succeed, um, uh, a recruitment company. Let's see that. Um, so I think we need to, um, it's still very emergent in terms of the effectiveness of this. Is it entirely locked into a certain type of working? Um, it probably is contingent a little bit based on, uh, as I mentioned, uh, the collaboration intensity. But yeah, I think that the answer to the question is yes, you can, um, and uh, and and uh, you, we've got evidence of that. Nice. Um, I think with that, we should just like tie a nice little bow on this and and round the conversation up. Hung, any last words um, that you want to leave us with? Uh, yeah, I do. I mean, I, I just want to say thank you very much for your time, Ben. I really enjoyed having this chat. Um, it, I, I felt that this was a uh, uh, the sort of level of conversation that we 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 need to start having, um, and I'm I'm very pleased to have taken part in it. So uh, thank you very much uh, for uh, for the invitation. Well, you're very welcome. I really enjoyed it. And remind us if people want to uh, engage in all of the great content that you write and you create, where should they head to? Yeah, just head to recruitingbrainfood.com. That's basically where HQ is. So you can find the uh, uh, the newsletters, the podcast, the, the video stuff. Um, that's all on there. So, um, so yeah, recruitingbrainfood.com. Go and do it. Uh, Hung, thank you so much for joining us today. I really, really appreciate it. And um, hey, maybe we'll have you back on again soon. Um, to Mel, thank you, our producer behind the virtual glass. Thank you for keeping the show on the road. To all of you listening along, wherever you are, we really appreciate you um, and if you've enjoyed this episode please do uh, leave us a review um, head to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and do that it helps other people discover the show we look forward to seeing you again soon I've been Ben Branson Gately your host and this has been the Culture Ops Podcast <laughs>